talk about whether we think what they're doing right now is sustainable, but they absolutely are pioneering. The whole industry is building the plane as it flies. Hello there, listener, and welcome to the 23rd roundtable of the Metacast. My name is Nico, and today we have a special episode. I'm joined by Jimmy Stone, Lars Doucet, and Aaron Bush, and we're doing a first a market update of the blockchain gaming industry, where we are specifically in October, and then after that, we are doing a deep dive into Axie Infinity. Um, and if you're a regular listener, you'll know that I said two names that you haven't heard before. So we have two new voices to welcome to the show. Uh, first of all, first off is Jimmy. Welcome. Hey, Nico. Great to be here. Uh, long time listener, first time guest. Awesome. That's awesome. Can you tell us uh, a bit more about yourself? Yeah. So uh, I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana, southern part of the U.S. And uh, spent my whole career, 10 plus years in finance. I was a banker, uh, then worked as an investor. And for the last three, three-ish years, I've been a consultant, been working with the guys at Novic um, now for a little over six months and have been going deep uh, down the rabbit hole of blockchain gaming. So yeah, what's, that's what brings me here. Nice. Uh, have you found any game that, uh, that interests you, a game you can play or maybe that, that you might be able to play in the future? Yes. I mean, traditional game, my, my big game is FIFA. Uh, my, we'll see if it can continue to be named that, uh, given the fight between EA and FIFA. But my wife, uh, who was on a trip with some friends last weekend, was away. So I got to play Ultimate Team all weekend, uh, placed, uh, I think, in, in the second tier, which for an old millennial like me, it felt pretty pretty cool. So yeah, FIFA's my game. Nice. Cool. All right. Uh, Jimmy, welcome. And then next up, we have uh, Lars Doucet. Hey, Lars. How's it going? I'm doing well. All right. Um, by the way, so if I I remember seeing you on Twitter and you're Lars Doucet, but you're also totally Texas. Can you explain that for me? Oh, that's a Norwegian catchphrase. So I'm Norwegian. Um, you can tell by the French last name that I'm also American. You know, my dad's from Louisiana heritage. My mom's from Norway. And so I live in Texas. And in Norway, I have this funny catchphrase called the data shikli Texas or the data hail Texas, which means that's totally Texas which is their kind of stereotype of us being like the crazy wild west. Like you go there and they're like, yeah, man, I was at this party last night. It was totally Texas. You should have been there, you know? <laughs> so like, so That's I a good put story. that in my, my, my title because I am totally Texas. Yeah, I like it. And uh, yeah, what are you up to these days? Yeah, so these days I am a consultant and an analyst, but my background is I'm a professional game developer. You know, I've released games on Steam and on consoles, and I've worked on a bunch of other people's projects. I come up through the traditional game industry. Um, ages ago, I was in educational games. Nowadays, you know, um, I'm a consultant and an analyst, and um, my job is to help investors not throw all their money away, and hopefully I can I can accomplish that occasionally. This is my first time working with Novik, and I've really enjoyed working with him, and um, yeah. Great. Good to hear. And uh, if you play video games, what do you what do you play? Yeah, that's the that's the curse of making games for a living is you have very little time to play them. But I recently got Metroid Dread and Unpacking, both for the Nintendo Switch. Metroid Dread needs no introduction. It's the latest Metroid game. It's pretty fun. And I also got this cool indie game called Unpacking, which is it's exactly what it sounds like. You just you have all these rooms and they represent different parts of your life and you just unpack boxes. And it's just like very satisfying. 
like the sound and the foley and the manipulation and you like put the books on the shelf. It's like, no, I'll just go there. That's, that's it. And it's just great because that's what I need in my life now that I'm old and boring. That's so interesting. I was recently talking to someone who was, who was telling me that, um, and I've heard this a few times, that they started playing Red Dead Redemption. And because like once they passed like the age of 35, the only thing or the, the reason they played the game was to like fish or just ride around. And they use it as some kind of meditation therapy, just to chill down. Um, so that, that's what you do as well with that unpacking game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it's about. Like, I mean, my, my, my kids do this too. Like my eight-year-old daughter loves Le- Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild and she plays it exclusively for the horses. She gets through the beginning as quickly as she can. She gets to the first horse stable and then she just plays there for hours and never lives or leaves and never like advances to the next part of the game. It's just horses. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, cool. Well, uh, Jimmy, Lars, super excited to have you on. Um, Aaron, how's it going? Pretty good. Happy to be here. Yeah, happy to have you. And perhaps you can you can start us off with uh, talking a bit more about what we're discussing today. Yeah, uh, yeah, we can dive right into it. So I am thrilled to announce that Novik is going premium. We're launching our first ever premium research service, and it's dedicated to blockchain games. And the crew here today is, you know, they're the ones doing really great work bringing it to life. So very excited to get this off the ground. And as everyone knows, especially if you've been listening to the the Metacast for a while, the idea of blockchain games and play to earn more specifically has been taking the industry by storm. Everyone is trying to figure out what it means, you know, when and where it's legit and how new economic dynamics in particular affect how certain games should be made and invested in. So this research service that we're launching is our attempt to bring everyone in and around the games industry the absolute best insights into this rising tide. We we keep it real. We don't pull punches. We give credit where it's due, criticize when things are flawed. We always break things down in detail so that um, subscribers will be able to really grasp the fundamentals. And we publish a new report every month. And each report is broken down into two key parts and a lot of what we'll we'll talk about today is um you know working through some of you know the first report uh but part 1 is an industry update we share data uh, and commentary on the sector as a whole top games player trends transaction volumes we break down the three most important industry developments in detail every month as well as share key news items and excellent resources that um will help you keep tabs on and get smarter about everything that's going on and then part two is a project deconstruction. We started with Axie Infinity, and every month we'll break apart a new game. And, and we really dig into the game design, the economy design, the tokenomics, future roadmap, and, and share our takes on what's good, what's bad, and where everything will likely go from here. So it's a really robust institutional level report every month. And whether you're a studio, publisher, entrepreneur, work in crypto, or invest in games and game companies, uh, we designed it to be useful to you. And I'm happy to share that you can actually check out our first report for free if you go to novic.co. It'll be right on our homepage by the time this episode goes live. Um, Or you can sign up to our newsletter, Master of the Meta, and we'll send it to everyone this weekend. Um, It's something we're, we're pretty proud of and you know, I've heard nothing but great feedback from our pilot customers so far. So make sure to check it out. Um, the The very last thing I'll say is pricing, uh, just to give the full details. The monthly subscription fee for these reports is $2,000 or 20000 if you pay for a full year upfront. 
But if you use the promo code METACAST at checkout, you will receive a 25% early bird discount off of your first 12 months. So you'd only pay $1,500 per month or $15,000 for the full year. And again, this will give you access to the research portal, which includes new monthly reports as well as the archive of any reports done in the past. So if interested, you can go to novic.co slash premium to sign up. And and we should put this in the show notes too. Um, and again, remember to use promo code Metacast at checkout. We'd love to to have you and try to help you, you know, master the the business of of blockchain games. And if you have any questions, you can reach out to me, um, email me at Aaron at Novik.co as well. So very excited to get this off the ground and really excited to be um, working on it with these guys here today and to talk about it a bit more in this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can absolutely confirm that it's the report is extremely in-depth and I, I learned quite a lot, although I already had spent quite a lot of time on, on Axie Infinity, so uh, it was really great. Um, all right, let's kick this off. So the, the first part of the report is a market update. Um, so yeah, Jimmy, you were, you were the one who, who worked most on that. What can you tell me about the most important takeaways? What, what do we need to know? So I tried to list, you know, the top three uh, takeaways for this call. I think the first would be, you know, just incredible growth over the past few months. So one way, one key KPI is daily unique active wallets, which is a proxy for users. And in October, it crossed the million user mark, wallet mark for the first time, which was up about 40% month over month. And when you look at, you know, the third quarter versus the second quarter, it was 100% plus type growth. So just massive growth in the number of wallets interacting with blockchain games. Uh, The other interesting part of that is several outlets have, have written about gaming being the Trojan horse for blockchain technology adoption. And you saw in the third quarter for the first time blockchain dApps, uh, de- decentralized apps, actually taking a 50, a 50% share of, of applications for the first time. So that's that's pretty exciting. On the transaction volume side, you saw over 750% growth third quarter versus second quarter, so to $2.3 billion. So just as a broad headline, you, you, you've seen massive growth over the last few months. The second point uh, that I thought was important to note is just the fact that power laws seem to dominate these trends. So Axie Infinity, which these guys will touch on in much more detail shortly, was 90% of transaction volumes in the third quarter. If you look at users, so going back to wallets again, Alien Worlds and Axie Infinity, which are the top two games by wallets, are 9 to 10x in, in number of wallets compared to the 10th game. So, you know, pretty significant concentration right now in this growth. Uh, and then the third point is just around the fundraising environment. We were, we were on a call this morning, Menu and I, with a client who was at NFT NYC, and he was amazed by the number of VCs in attendance. And you, and you can really see this coming through in the numbers. So October, there was $360 million, a little over $360 million raised uh, by startups. Uh, Sky Mavis, the maker of Axie Infinity, was the largest. They had $152 million Series B. The October trend was down slightly from September, but you got to remember Dapper Labs and SoRare raised over $900 million in, in uh, last month. So uh, while it's down from that, you know, still 4X all of blockchain gaming fundraising in 2020 in, in the month of October alone. So, you know, going forward, fundraising expected to continue to be strong, has been strong. But, you know, those are the three kind of key areas I thought we should address on this call. Mm-hmm. 
for the um, the growth in users or daily active wallets, is there like a game, like one game that's responsible for most of that, or is it nice, like, like distributed among the top games? Yeah. So as I mentioned, it's it's primarily from Alien Worlds and Axie, um, and it may be worth noting, you know, the source for that is Dapp Radar. Um, they don't cover every blockchain, and and also another thing is when you look at wallets, right? I, I think I said a million daily active wallets in a month. Axie, which puts out their own number, you know, it's over, I think, Jiho, their growth lead, put out two and a half million um, a couple of days ago. Mm. So it's not a perfect number, but yeah, it's, it's kind of split mainly between the top, the top games. Cool. All right. And what are some other like uh, key industry developments you're seeing and you discuss in your reports? Yeah, so we covered we covered three. Um, you know, happy to dive into more detail on any, but uh, the first one was you know the Steam and Epic um, <laughs> you know viewpoint on distribution. So Steam came out announced that they were basically banning blockchain games and they're in 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 Steam. Uh, Epic then shortly thereafter came came and said they're open for business uh, for for blockchain games so long as they comply with certain you know with all the uh, requisite laws. And this was interesting because it was a little bit of a 180 from what Epic Games uh, CEO Tim Sweeney had had stated previously that Epic was kind of not going to be in the business of developing um, blockchain games. So you kind of have an interesting bifurcation of Epic Games, the distributor versus Epic Games, uh, the developer. Um, And, you know, from our point of view, we think, you know, from a strategic standpoint, this seems like a strong move from Epic, you know, that they're open to you know, the industry and blockchain games in the future versus Valve kind of taking a more cautious stance, which may, you know, from a headline standpoint, uh, make it viewed negatively. It's it's also interesting because if you look at distribution, um, Dapp Radar, Radar put out a great report, you know, stating that 50, I think it's a little over 50% of games are distributed through PC. Uh, Steam is, you know, one of the, large, the largest distributors, I think the largest distributor of PC games. You know, it's just an interesting kind of, choice not to make your messaging saying you're still figuring it out you know you're not right now but you're open long term from epic's point of view i think it's a strong strategic decision there seems to be a really strong business opportunity there mm. also think it's you know quite interesting the industry's grown at the rate it has even with kind of a fragmented distribution model you either have to sideload the game on your mobile device or you have to go you know navigate directly to the game website to download it. So just kind of an interesting development longer term to this is just something I've been thinking about and be interested to get your take, Nico, is, you know, you hear a lot about decentralization um, of governance of user data when it comes to Web3 and blockchain games. But what's interesting is like from a market structure point of view, you're, you're seeing quite a bit of centralization, um, whether it's like the blockchains themselves or the exchanges like an OpenSea or Solana Art. And so it'll be interesting longer term as distribution potentially gets figured out, becomes more centralized, how users feel about all this. That was an interesting one to dive into. And then the other the other topics we cover, which I won't spend too much more time on unless unless we have the time, is you know, you you've seen a lot of token funds get raised over the last month. Uh, your employer Bitcraft raised one. You saw Metaphor Capital, Galaxy Interactive uh, raise funds that'll be fo- you know, partly focused on tokens, some of them partly focused on equity investments as well. So that's something we're, you know, we think are super interesting and brings up, you know, interesting implications for governance, for for the market, for tokens. And then the last thing we touched upon the other topic was just kind of this race for talent, Concept Art House, which raised a $25 million Series A. They're kind of an art studio. And, you know, just, just this idea that 
Yusuf Drunin, who's an industry thought leader, put out a piece on you know the, some of the valuations for some of these companies. You know, so rare, yes, multi billion dollar valuation, but only having you know thirty. I think it's thirty to fifty employees, and you compare that to a Zynga, which is an eight billion dollar you know public company who has a thousand plus employees, or you know an EA or an Activision with tens of thousand employees. So just this need for for talent in the industry, for these companies to really scale their businesses. And, you know, you're seeing that play out with these interesting funding rounds. I mean, a $25 million Series A raise probably means $100 million plus valuation for an art studio. Um, just just really interesting. And, and, you know, you could see some aqua hires happen in the future, some acquisitions for port to acquire talent. Um, yeah. So anyway, those are those are the kind of the three topics we, we, we wrote about this week in the industry. To illustrate that last point, I was talking to a founder today and he told me that he was looking for a Solidity developer. Um, and that Solidity yeah. de developer wanted to start at 300k uh, salary per year. <laughs> Casual. Not bad. Yeah. 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 Um, so that was fun. Second point that I'd like to make is that Steam is, as we say in the crypto world, NGMI. Uh, so not going to make it. Um, and then, <laughs> and then the last point um, that was interesting, where you talk about you know centralization within you know this supposedly decentralized ecosystem of the blockchain. Um, but I feel like that's a topic for like a whole a whole long discussion. So I'll skip over that. But um, sure. we, we can talk about like OpenSea and how it's really not the same as like a Steam or or an App Store. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to triangulate some of what Jimmy said with like other things that we dove into with Axie and also Novik's been working with Investgame on their Q3 deals report anyways. And it's kind of funny. I mean, Steam will be fine. You know, Steam and Epic are still super relevant to to the industry. They're legacy companies now. We've seen both with um, Axie and Sky Mavis with, with what, they're, what they're working on, plus what we see in all the funding is it really opens up... Um, an opportunity for others to build infrastructure and platforms for uh, more Web3 blockchain games to be built on. And so probably a trend that we're going to see over the next couple of years, few years, is figuring out who's going to win that race um, if this like really turns into something um, meaningful, which will be fascinating to follow. Hmm. So exciting. Yeah. All right. So that was a bit of a uh, an industry overview. Thank you, thank you so much, Jimmy. Let's um let's now talk about you know the the, the big part of of today's episode, which is Axie Infinity and uh, and your deep dive into it. Um, Aaron, you wanna you wanna give us a short intro about like what, what you did, and then also perhaps talk about you know the history of of Sky Mavis and, and Axie Infinity. Sure. So. Um... Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, like this deconstruction is is meant to be like a very complete deconstruction. And Axie Infinity, what that team in Sky Mavis is working on, there's so much going on. Like the actual like report that's dedicated to Axie Infinity is like it's 70 pages worth of content, which again you can you can check out um, if you go to our to our website. So we covered a lot. We talked about um, you know what led. Axie Infinity and Sky Mavis to where they are today. We dove pretty deep into the game design, into the economy design, how the tokens work, all of the different things that they're working on for the future and how we think that, you know, will play out, uh, both in terms of how it affects the game, but also how it affects the sustainability of the economy. And we kind of we kind of wrap it up with with our view of where we think things are going and doing some modeling here and there to kind of show how value might be captured and how that could change over time. So at a high level, that's what this section of the report digs into. To kick it off and talk about just like 
introducing, you know, Axie Infinity and, and Sky Mavis. Many people probably know this game, you know, Axie Infinity, you collect your Axies, which are your NFTs, they're little like Pokemon style figures that then you go into different modes and, and battle. And, and Lars can talk a bit more about the different game modes themselves. But then, you know, if you win, do well, you earn tokens, and then you can spend those tokens to buy more Axies or do whatever. And I think Lars will also probably talk more about, you know, the types of people who are playing this game. But to really um, take a step back, so Axie Infinity is developed by Sky Mavis, which is headquartered in Vietnam. Sky Mavis was founded by a handful of people in 2018, and they believed that blockchain games could lead to economic empowerment for players. But the leading example games at that time, like CryptoKitties, they lacked the right infrastructural, economic, and gameplay chops to, to really succeed. And Sky Mavis thought they could do Better, and Axie Infinity was their attempt to do just that. So their mission isn't even necessarily first and foremost to build a great game. It's to build a game that leads to economic opportunity for people around the world. And the story up until now is really about steady improvements that unlocked different inflection points in the game. In 2019, the game started finding its footing and they started selling land, which we'll talk more about. In 2020, they launched their PC launcher, Mavis Hub. They started using Ronin, which is their... Um, you know, Ethereum-based sidechain, which exists primarily to lower transaction costs for users. And uh, they launched their two tokens last year, too. And, and then, of course, this year, 2021, is when the growth really started taking off. This occurred once the axes themselves were migrated over to Ronin, which reduced the friction for new users to get started. And there's just been a lot of momentum and, frankly, FOMO going on the, this income. And to kind of put the cherry on top, more recently, Sky Mavis raised a massive Series B round to expand its ambitions even further. So if we look at the game today, there are over 2 million players. Sky Mavis has 80 employees, um, and they've ramped that up pretty quickly. They have grand plans for the future with and beyond Axie Infinity, and their tokens are worth about $10 billion. So that's the, the high-level gist of where we are and, and how we got there. Mm -hmm. It feels like, um, I think... At least from my perspective, it was really Axie who initiated this frenzy around the whole blockchain gaming space. Absolutely pioneering yep. this movement. They were one of the, the first movers of the space. And they really probably were the first to figure it out at scale and figure out, I mean, having 2 million players, like it's a lot. We'll talk about whether we think what they're doing right now is sustainable, but they absolutely are are pioneering. The whole industry is building the plane as it flies, essentially. And they're, they're sort of, you know, they're one of the pilots up front, it feels like, um, <laughs> you know, figuring it out more than anyone. Yeah, totally. All right, let's uh, talk a bit more about uh, who are these, you know, 2 million players. Lars, um, you want to you wanna talk about that? Yeah, so there's a couple of ways we can measure this, but the easiest way is just to ask I Mavis. And so I um, asked Alexander Larson, uh, he's the CEO and one of the co-founders of Where Are Their Players. And uh, he told me that 65 to 70% of the overall population is from the Southeast Asia region. America is just 10% of the population. Um, the rest is like 20, 25% from Europe and Africa. Mm. Over half of them are in the Philippines, specifically the Philippines. And you can back this up with other searches like Google Trends and traffic to their website because their website's a bottleneck on acquiring the game. You can't get it anywhere but their website. Even if you're side-loading to Android, you have to download it from their website. And the traffic is consistently like the Philippines, Venezuela, and Cuba. And like America will show up like position like 30 in any of those lists, like usually below Iran. So 
as best we can tell, most of their players are in developing countries where they're very low income. So that raises the suspicion that most of these players are so-called scholars. Scholars are players who are basically loaned virtual livestock, you know, loaned axes by sponsors because the people in the Philippines can't afford their own because that's like, you know, over half your monthly income. Right now, I think it costs like $350 to buy three axes to play the game, which is required. So we asked them and they told us that the number of scholars, yeah, 16, 65%, they estimate are scholars. And so, so most players are in the developing world and most players are scholars. So those are pretty hard numbers. And then there's some softer numbers on why people are playing, like some informal surveys that have been done. And like about 15% will say they're here to actually just like play the game for its own sake as like their primary motivation. And most people are either here for the economy or like the community, whatever that means, like as their main reason to be there. People here to earn is like at least half the population. The fact that so many people are scholars in the Philippines uh, speaks to that. And we can get into this later, but one of the things to like really get to that is we charted out, we modeled the amount you could earn every day, depending on how good you were at the game over the last like year. And we factored in the price of their in-game currency and their policies of how much they were giving out and how much people could expect to earn at different payout rates of skill levels. And then compared that to the average wage of the Philippines and the minimum wage of the Philippines. Because our hypothesis is that when the amount you can earn goes below one of those lines, that if, if people are primarily paying just to get money, that's going to affect mm. user behavior. And um, so that, that's a big part of the report. But mostly they're um, low-income people in developing nations that uh, don't own their own assets, that are kicking money back to their sponsors, typically 30, between 25 and 50% of their earnings. And, um, and they're playing it like a job. So the retention you're seeing is like ridiculous. Like their day 60 and day 90 retention are like the same. And it's like never see these retention rates in games. But if you compare them to retention rates for jobs, it makes a lot more sense. Um, so that, that's kind of who's playing the game and why. It, it, it resembles much more of a job than a game at this point in terms of the player base. Yeah, it feels like we're going to have to start thinking completely different around these things, right? The moment people start earning, it's no longer a game, or it might be, but it's, it's, it's more than that. Yeah, indeed. Um, yeah, all right. What are for you the, the lessons learned here from... Um, from for other like blockchain game developers, is the scholar model something essential for growth? Um, should they focus on these emerging economies? What do you think? Um, well, the thesis of our report is that the entire model is unsustainable. That um, in to be frank, I don't think I'm doing investors any favors by sugarcoating it. I think they're headed for a brick wall. I think the um, they're they're you know it's basically like if I were to come to you as your employee and tell you I've increased our customer base by 25%, you'd be excited. And if I came and told you that I had just gone and hired a bunch of people and increased our headcount by 25%, you'd be a little scared, you know, because the minute the growth stops, every single one of those users isn't an asset, they're a liability. They're expecting more money out of the system than they're putting in. And they're also not very loyal to the system. They have that huge retention, which we usually see in regular games as a sign of loyalty. But here it's like, I've got that huge retention because you look at the graph and I've been above the profit line for this long. But now we're under the profit line, like just now. Like we just fell under for most MMRs under the minimum wage profit line too. So, um, so, so what's going to happen? You know, and Axie Infinity. You know, if you look at their public communications, they know this. Like they acknowledge this that the model is unsustainable. And um, so we were like, okay, so you know this. What's your plan? And they're like, okay, well we're going to transition. We're going to add these new features, and we're going to transition to a more sustainable plan. We're going to have a free to play game that's going to come out. 
you know, the original plan was to launch that on Steam, Apple, and Google Play. It seems like none of that's going to happen. They're going to have to distribute individually now. And I think distribution is, whether Steam is a legacy app or not, I mean, there's a question of exactly what is the cap on how many crypto-native players are really out there. So then they got this land gameplay coming out, and I've got a lot to say about that, and I think that's unsustainable too. My, my basic thesis is that they have a lot of plans, but all their plans mostly are just ways to keep the growth train going. And my thesis, and Novik's thesis in general, is in order to be sustainable, you need to have customers who are willing to just put in money just to enjoy the experience. You can't, if, if you have a carnival and people need to go to ride the Ferris wheel to eat the popcorn, you know, they, they pay $5 and, and they're happy. They're happy that they didn't leave the carnival with $6. Mm. You know, Amazon burned money for years. Tesla burned money for years. Plenty of unsustainable companies have transitioned to sustainable ones. Um, Zynga did too when they were, you know, doing arbitrage on Facebook's, you know, policies that were going to go away. But they need to come up with something fast. And their current plans, I mean, they, they're very coy about what their plans are, you know, because they don't want to tip their hand. But what they've stated publicly doesn't um, give me a whole lot of confidence that they can transition to a sustainable model, unless they have huge surprises in store for us, which would be exciting. Yeah, let me unpack the sustainability point just a little bit more. And then, Nico, you can help us like dive into you know more specific topics if you want to unpack anything in particular. Um, so yeah, I mean, the game as it is today, it might continue to expand for a while. After all, it still only has 2 million users. But I mean, I think, I mean, we, we kind of came to this consensus that the economic design is unsustainable. And uh, Lars's carnival analogy is a good one. The vast majority of players play in order to earn income. And that's not necessarily wrong, but it means that the vast majority of participants are looking to take more money out of the economy than they put in it. And in a vacuum, that wouldn't work at all. It defies the laws of economics in a way that crypto and, and nothing can't magically solve. And that that flaw is covered up by the growth of new users. And, and how it works is because all of the revenue streams, the marketplace fees and the breeding fees really exist around onboarding new players, um, selling SLP and axes to new players or the guilds who back them to, to onboard. Everything is propped up by new players putting money into the system mm. that existing players um, through you know fancy mechanisms then take out as income. Um, and again, it can continue to grow, but it, that's a fragile place to be in. So not only is um, you know, revenue growth really dependent on the growth of users, but it's dependent on the pace of new user addition. So even if the user base grows, but the pace of new users decelerates, it would lead to less revenue. And less revenue would lead to the value of existing assets, the axes and the tokens falling, which then you know, would demotivate the new and existing players who do play for income and you know, just generating wealth of some type. So really the positive feedback loop that led to the momentum of expansion and new players and high prices, um, it can reverse if if they're not careful. And, that, and that's not necessarily like to say 100% Axie Infinity is doomed. Like that's, that really is like our take on the current state of the game. And they can continue to fiddle with monetary policy, but it really like it understates the importance of their work to come, especially around the land and UGC efforts and being willing to like adapt and intelligently invest in that realm. Um, and that's because those efforts are the ones that could theoretically lead to more types of ongoing revenue opportunities. But just as importantly, revenue opportunities, as Lars was saying, where not all players expect to profit on every move that they that they make in the game. So so that's really like the big unlock that has to happen 
if they're hoping to achieve some type of sustainability. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. So before we unpack that a little bit further and then talk about exactly where the problem lies and how it could potentially be solved, perhaps it makes sense to quickly go through, you know, the, the game loops inside the game um, and to, to talk a bit about that. So we have some context and then we can uh, we can build build on that as well. Yeah. OK. So real quick, the game is, is pretty simple. So if you played Pokemon, I actually will be very familiar to you. And if you played a free to play mobile game like Clash of Cans or Candy Crush, it'll also be fairly familiar. So there's two basic modes. There's um, player versus environment, single player, and player versus player, which is, you know, battles against other people. So every day you can do single player and you can just fight like some Final Fantasy battles against monsters, right? That doesn't cost any like daily energy to play. Like energy is a gating mechanic in free-to-play games to basically like manage the retention. Like Farmville or Candy Crush or Clash of Clans, it's like, oh, you can only do so many moves a day. It doesn't cost energy to do all your... Uh, single player stuff, but it does cost energy to like claim XP and like level yourself up. So you can do your daily quests every day and you can do your player versus environment stuff and you can earn smooth love potion, which is the main in-game currency. Then you can also, um, so you can just like fight up monsters and, you know, just grind a little. And it's a very simple little RPG um, with your axes that all have like different parts and different abilities. And it's a card game battler. So it's like Pokemon with cards. And depending on your axes genetics, you get different cards for each one. And that's a very simplified version of it. Uh, the arena, the battle modes against other players, you have an MMR, matchmaking ranking. We'll use that word again. Um, and so that will match you against someone else, and you'll fight. And if you win, your ranking goes up. If you lose, your ranking goes down. And if you win, um, you get a certain amount of reward, depending on how high your MMR is. So higher-skilled players earn more per win. And I think you can make... Um, like one of the daily quests is to win five battles in the arena mode and stuff. And there's like daily caps on how much you can earn. And every battle costs energy. And you get more energy by having more axes. So most scholars only have 20 energy a day. They have 20 like attempts to win. So if their win rate is pretty low, you know, not only will their MMR drop, they won't they won't make as much money. Um, and so that's that's a basis of the game. And then you can breed axes, and that costs smooth love potion, you know, your in-game reward that you're getting for everything, and then AXS, which is the governance token we'll get into later. And then it'll it'll it's just Mendelian genetics, kind of, you know, breeds two axes. And then you have mutations, and then you can keep those or sell them on the market. And that's the basic game, if that makes sense. Okay, and if I understand correctly, the play-to-earn loop was people just playing the game as intended, earning SLP, and selling that SLP as their daily wage. Yes. And when you sell SLP, crucially, it's not burned. It just exchanges hand to someone else. Someone else gives you dollars or, or Ethereum or whatever for it. You know, so it stays in the ecosystem. Yeah, and and the reason that people are willing to buy SLP is because they're going to use it to breed new axes, which are they are then going to sell to new players. Right. So as long as there is demand for new axes, there is demand for SLP and AXS to breed things. One key metric to look at is the number of axes per player. Mm-hmm. Right. You know. Could you give us an idea about like um, the differences in MMR and how much people can earn, um, and perhaps also look at like you know a, a few months ago I know that the SLP price was way higher. So um, I just like to to have um, an idea of how much people were able to earn. I think it was back in May or July or something, uh, May June or July, um, and 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 what that's looking like today. Yeah. So. It's changed dramatically, is is the short version. So um, we, we made this whole graph of just various MMRs. And so back in, like, what is this, May, at the beginning of May, like, you could make close to $200 a day at the highest MMRs. And even at the lowest MMR, you know, people are making, like, $70 a day with 20 energy at the highest rankings. The low earners, you know, were making, like, you know, as much as 40 
And now the lowest MMRs are making absolutely nothing because they, they, they put that in policy that if you're sub 800, you can't earn anything in any mode. And the Philippine daily wage is a, a, a below like $10 and the average wage is like 42 or something. And um, wages fell below the Philippine average wage for all MMRs around, um, I think, in August. Uh, just eyeballing this chart. And then in October, they massively diverged. They changed the policy. So like, not only did they cut your daily earnings in half in, I think, what looks like the August update, they also, in October, they changed it further so that they diverged the MMR. So high MMRs make more, lower MMRs make less. And if you have less than 800 MMR, you make nothing. That was speculated to be dealing with bot accounts who are only playing like adventure mode every day, you know, player versus environment, and just like, or going into arena and just like, randomly tapping cards. And that had a massive effect on the ecosystem because all the crappy, bad players left the game. And anyone who's ever played a competitive game knows what happens when all the yeah. scrubs leave. When all the easy players leave, there's nobody to feed on. So you might have had an MMR of 1,500 last month, but this month your MMR is 800 because you're just fighting only the experts who are left. So um, these graphs are represent what your earnings could be if you're able to maintain your MMR. And most people's MMRs has collapsed um, in the last couple months. So now it's mostly just really elite players who are able to consistently earn. And like, if you go on the subreddit, you see all these scholars like complaining that their MMRs have dropped and people are like, my scholars can't earn anything. Like their MMRs are dropping. Like, what should I do? And so all, all these things have consequences for the economy. Fascinating. Yeah, I didn't know that. And how much did, did you ever play the game, Lars? I did not have $350 to spend. So I watched a whole bunch of YouTube videos and um, watch that in depth, and like read a bunch of strategy guides and things like that. Mm. Um, but no, I, I, must, I must confess, I didn't. I didn't actually install on my device. How much skill expression is there in this game? Um, and how important is is your axes? And and the, and you know, like how much you're willing to spend for good axes? Um, you have an idea? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a game designer, so I've I've watched the videos and I've looked at the game design analysis, and you know I've analyzed card games specifically for clients before. So I can say that there's there's a decent skill component to this game, but your build matters a lot, especially lately. It used to be like a couple of months ago, most people were able to like hit their earnings cap um, at mid level MMRs. That's because like there were all there's so many bots and scrubs to feed against, you know, who were mostly just like. When you had this like basis level of people who are just playing for like just get daily quests and play player versus environment, you know, they would just show up in arena and they would get beat all the time as long as they could get their five wins. You know what I mean? So you could beat them. And so you were playing against what we call floor axes, which are axes that have the lowest price that are the least effective in the meta. Like there's not a lot of demand for them. Like any competitive game with any diversity in characters is always going to have characters mm -hmm. that are better than others. And Axie's no exception, but the meta keeps changing. You know, people figure out like Terminators were really popular for a while. It's the name of a specific build. You know, there's this rock, paper, scissors interaction between like the, the classes, like bug versus bird versus plant, whatever, like just like Pokemon. And so people find a way to beat the old meta. But nowadays with the changes in policy, it's shifted from being like a little bit of luck because there's critical hits and stuff like that. And you don't know who you're up against and having a decent build but nowadays, it's like, if you've got floor axes, you're not really mm. You need to buy the more expensive axes if you want to be able to comp be competitive yeah. today. Or get, your, or get your sponsor to do that. Right, exactly. Yeah. I um I think that's what happened to me. So I, I wanted to try out the game. So I, I bought three floor axes, and they're absolute trash. So um now, now I understand <laughs> why, why I couldn't win any games. 
Yeah, two months ago you could have you could have you could have been sailing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess. Um, or you're just really bad, Nico. Or you're just really bad. I think that's that's it, man. Just not made. <laughs> you're certainly better than I probably would be. I'm, I'm <laughs> uh, all right. So okay, we we've already seen that uh, you know SLP um, currently unsustainable. Um, how does AXS or the Axie shard um, come into this picture? Yeah. So whereas SLP is the in-game currency that people earn from from winning in the game axs it, it it represents future ownership of the game so that's why you see its market cap be so much larger and really it's a governance token which means that theoretically over time sky mavis will kind of more decentralize the decision making of where axie infinity is going to move next what they focus on developing next and the axs holders will start to be able to vote on different different matters probably where development resources are spent how certain Certain elements are, you know, are changed, they're nerfed or whatnot, depending on how people perceive the current state of the game. Um, so it's a pretty important token. The caveat is that it doesn't actually uh, do much in terms of governance. Today, the game is still pretty much, it's very owned by Axie Infinity and very much managed fully, or sorry, by Sky Mavis and very much managed fully by, by Sky Mavis as well. But AXS, it does... A few things. It does represent ownership of the game. It is a governance token that theoretically will enable voting in the future. Um, importantly, uh, you know the the DAO around um, Axie Infinity receives part of the transaction fees that occur from breeding. You need AXS as well to breed new axes. Um, so it does have some component there of you know increasing the number of axes, which connects to onboarding new users, which connects to transaction fees that go back to kind of the central DAO entity. Um, so it, it is relevant there. And theoretically, also once the land gameplay comes into effect, and, and Lars should also hit on the land a little bit, um, but theoretically, AXS is going to generate some type of reward there as well. The last couple of things is that you can stake AXS it doesn't actually do any validating. <laughs> so it's kind of the most pointless staking I've really seen, but it really just incentivizes the holding, like the long-term holding of AXS tokens. Um, so, uh, you know, incentivize people to stick around for a while and save part of the, the Axie experience. 120% APY, my friend. That's why people buy it. Yeah, people buy it to make money and it kind of props up, again, just like people like staying in this ecosystem so that it doesn't decelerate and fall apart. Um, so I guess it does have like an economic role in that sense in terms of incentives, but it doesn't actually do anything functional to staking for the game. And then lastly, uh, just really quickly, Ronin, which again is Sky Mavis's side chain that um, you know people use to trade you know the axes and items and land. Recently, they opened a liquidity pool for that where people can put in AXS paired with other tokens in order to generate Ronin tokens. And this liquidity obviously helps keep that, that marketplace liquid, which is fundamentally good. So AXS has been growing in its number of use cases, but its actual like core purpose of governance still hasn't played out yet. And it's very dependent, kind of going back to the sustainability point. Again, a lot of the revenue around AXS is still very connected to new players, uh, the momentum of new players. So the value of AXS is very much dependent on uh, the pace of new players. So if the pace of new players continues to expand, AXS will probably do all right. If it decelerates and um, Sky Mavis can't figure out how to create new revenue streams and new ways in time, then AXS tokens the value um, might be in trouble. 
Yeah. One point I'd like to make on that, and I've been, I've been thinking about this recently, is the fact that a token has any kind of utility inside a game, um, for me at least, makes it completely unusable, unusable as some kind of way to um, calculate the market cap or use it as a comparison with the market gap of traditional companies. Yes. So for example, I mean, I could generate 1 billion tokens and I could, you know, sell them and, and let people redeem them. Or I can sell them for, let's say, 10 bucks and let people redeem them for any kind of service. Um, the moment that people can use it for something, they'll do it and it, it will have a certain value, but that doesn't make this token suddenly worth $10 billion. It'd be the same, for example, if you had to own an Apple share in order to buy an iPhone, right? At that point, the whole dynamic changes and it doesn't really make sense to to at least to compare, you know, a traditional company share to these types of tokens that have a potential utility. No, not at all. And a traditional company, I mean, value is captured through profits and therefore like the value that stakeholders receive is like through how people, you know, perceive those profits and how it'll play out into the future. But these games, it's not really about how it leads to profits. It's about finding a new way to just measure the economy and how value is captured in an entire in-game economy. And obviously Axie makes it a bit more complicated by having two tiers of tokens that do different things. Plus, you know, some value is captured in the actual like NFT assets themselves. But yeah, you're right, Nico. It's an entirely it's an entirely new game. And in the same way that game designers are trying to figure out what these economic shifts mean for how games can or should be designed into the future, I think it's sort of the same thing on the finance side. It's figuring out like, okay, what are the new models? How do you even think about revenue and how it relates to value capture? Um, and when monetary policy is different in every game, how you have to think about that <laughs> is different in every game too. You know, like a company, like every company, even if it's different, it still generates profits and steeple. people still value companies the same similarly based on how those profits get extrapolated into the future. But they all, you know, fall under the same monetary economic system. Um, here, people are inventing new monetary systems. And so it's it's much more bottoms up and figuring out how to value these economies and how it translates into the value and it also has, because it's used as a portion of breeding, and they adjust the amount, the, the relationship between how much SLP and AXS now and then. And I believe they take Sky Mavis's, um, like Sky Mavis doesn't take a portion of that um, SLP breeding cost, but I do think they take their income from the AXS cost. So that's, um, or at least the treasury, which it's complicated. Yeah, like the, the, the treasury DAO, I think, gets paid out of AXS breeding costs. Yeah. And, and, and to go a bit deeper into that, I find it quite ironic that supposedly these games, uh, and I'm, I'm talking against my, my own passion for, you know, decentralized games and blockchain games. It's it's funny how they made the decision to, very centralized, right? The, the, the makers of the game made the decision to, uh, for example, make sure that anyone who has a MMR below 800 suddenly doesn't earn SLP anymore. And so it could be that there's actually a very large number of people that are, you know, kicked out of the game. But, I mean, they do this to make the game sustainable. And if... AXS would have a real like governance power um, that would actually perhaps lead to this not being possible and you know leads to its own demise in a way. I mean, they even use, they even use the metaphor of calling themselves nations, right? Like Axie Nation, right? And it's like that's not too far off. It's like you've got your own like Alan Greenspan there pulling the levers, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, that dovetails into our next section about um, you know governance and, and land, especially is. Um, just like uh, there's there's a couple of blockchain companies like I've talked to that say like we don't sell in-game utility 
you know, uh, attached to assets because one of the problems is like when an asset like acquires like this ability to be really powerful in the game, and then you just like, realize later as a game designer that it's massively OP and it breaks the game and makes it not fun or it breaks your economy. Like that asset now has a coalition that's going to like 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 we have this problem in the real world with all kinds of asset class holders who are like, um, well, I won't vote for you. Everyone knows that this is terrible, but we have to subsidize corn in Iowa every year because otherwise you can't win the Iowa caucuses, right? You know what I mean? And so, um, yeah, if you if you want to like dive into the land portion and Axie Origin and what's next, we could. Um, Let's do it. I'm ready. Yeah, okay. So the, there's, there's three things that are kind of next for Axie. I mean, we've touched on Ronin already, you know, and they've already launched their decks, you know, decentralized, um, you know, exchange for various definitions of decentralized. Um, but Axie Origin and land are the next two big things. So like Sky Mavis constantly says, it's like, we know the current model is not sustainable. And so their job is to keep hope alive. That's like, we know we're dealing with it. We're going to work with it. We're going to fix this. We're going to be like Amazon or Tesla. We're, we're going to land softly. Um, just, just give it time. And that's enough to keep people like, okay, I'll, I trust you. And maybe they'll pull it off. But here's what they've currently said. And they could surprise us at any time by changing this plan. But currently, because um, it's centralized, they can do whatever they want. But Axie Origin is their free-to-play game that's going to come out soon. And that is a completely separate game from Axie Infinity. Like, the art even looks different. And the plan for that, they said this at ECC4 or whatever. It was a recent conference. Um, they said they were going to launch it on Steam, Google Play, and Apple. And I think none of those are going to happen based off of their policies. Mm-hmm. Right? And the whole idea was to be this kind of, kind of like Trojan horse. It's like, introduce you to the Axie universe. There's no crypto in it. But then you're going to become attracted to become an Axie Infinity player. Right? And um, so first of all, their distribution's been cut off, um, which creates a demand maybe for new crypto-native distribution. But I think that crypto-native distribution is going to be heavily populated by play-to-earners rather than play to give you some moneyers, which is what you could have gotten from Steam and Google Play and, and Apple. And then also it seems like they don't really have a plan to change the nature of their gameplay. They keep talking. They're pretty disparaging of the free-to-play gameplay model, and I get it. I'm not a fan. But they don't seem to have plans to like okay, we're going to have this other business model that's going to like be more sustainable and prop this up. It's like, no, we're going to use this to keep the growth train going. At least from their current plans, they could change it. And then that dovetails into land, which is what a lot of people have their hopes set up. And it's really important to underscore that Axie kind of like, like land-based gameplay has been around kind of forever in various ways, but Axie really like set the standard now to the point like when people are getting investment decks, like the investors are going to come in and be like, what's your land gameplay? You know, you have like Yield Guild games and all these other... Um, um, like guilds that are these kind of weird like investor conglomerates that like of, of regular people that like pool their assets to buy token shares. They'll have in their white papers, we look for games with land-based gameplay. And I have kind of a lot to say about this because I've studied the 30-year history of MMOs. And every time you have what we call land-like assets, even in non-crypto games, you have land recessions and housing recessions that mirror the same thing that's happening in San Francisco right now. Um, and all over the country where like, I mean, has your rent been going up lately? You know, and um, there's good economic reasons for that. It dates back to um, some old dusty economics going back 150 years to David Ricardo, Adam Smith. He talked about this a whole lot. Um, and then, of course, most famously, mm-hmm. Henry George, who talked about how, um, and David Ricardo has this thing called Ricardo's Law of Rent that explains exactly what happens. Basically, a land-like asset is one that is scarce, in quantity and is necessary for production and also obtains value based off of its location. And this is exactly what Axie and a bunch of other games sell. They put these plots out. There's only going to be this many plots of land. In Axie, it's 92,000. They've sold 12,000 already. 2.3 
million daily active users, 92,000 plots of land. Do the math. They themselves put out a blog blog post like a year ago talking about one plot of land sold for $1.5 million, right? What happens is that um, what, what's special about land-like assets is that it's different from capital, right? Capital is like a factory or something that you use to like. It's wealth that gives you more wealth. What's different about land-like assets is you can't make more. And because you can't make more, what we see play out time and time again across economies all over the world is that people go and they hold the land out of use. And because it obtains value based off its location, if your neighbor is productive, you become more productive. If I have an empty lot with a hot dog stand in the middle of Gerlach, Nevada, I will earn no income. If I have an empty lot next to Times Square with a hot dog stand on it, I can sell a lot of hot dogs. But that's not because I'm a good hot dog vendor, it's because I have a good location. Because all the people of New York have built this wonderful city and they all live there, and so mm-hmm. I can monetize them. But that's the productive activity of my neighbors. You know, it's like, okay, well, what if you have to pay for that privilege? That's called a land value tax. And that's how you typically solve this problem. Um, and that's exactly what happened in EVE Online. EVE Online is famous for having a real, like most people try to make a sophisticated economy in their game and it all goes to pieces because it turns out to be much more complicated than people expected. But EVE has mostly kind of succeeded in creating their weird anarchist, you know, crazy world with a functional economy for various definitions of functional. But when they first launched, they faced a massive land crisis. Their land-like assets were called factories, but they were like land because they were created by the game developers and they were fixed in number. And that was the only way you could build ships. And so what happened is people speculated on all the factories, held them out of use, and were like, I'm going to charge you exorbitant rent to build any ships. So there are no ships in the game. You know, there, there, was, there was a ship recession because the ship land was, was all just, just held by speculators. So Raman Chakrazadeh, He's apparently working on his own crypto game, which we'll be very interested in. Raman Chakrazadeh is an economist, and he studied this, and he was like, okay, I know how to fix this. Went to Iceland and talked to the um, people and said, here's how you solve it. You apply a high holding fee to these scarce necessary assets. And if you apply that high holding fee, it'll create a hot potato effect. People who aren't there to do anything productive will give it up. And um, then someone who is going to do something productive with it will will hold it because they can afford the holding fee because they're going to make this much money, like, doing something good with it. And that's going to put it to its highest and best use. And without realizing it, he had, Raman Chakrazadeh had reinvented from first principles Henry George's famous mm-hmm. land value tax, um, which pretty much any modern economist will admit is the most efficient tax, even if they're grumpy about admitting it. Um, like Milton Friedman, like arch-anarcho-capitalist, uh, well, maybe not anarcho-capitalist, but like neoclassical capitalist, like called it the least worst tax. And um, that's basically one of the ways you can solve this. Or the world is digital, right? You can just make more land. You can make more land for everyone. But the biggest problem with it is that they have this idea of a Lunasia SDK, right? That's what they call it. The Lunasia SDK, the world of Lunasia. People are going to be able to build games in the system. And that's what's so important. Oh, you're going to be a platform. You're going to be Roblox on the blockchain. Platforms make a lot of money. But I don't have to pay rent to like other Roblox creators to, to buy a slot on Roblox in order to launch a Roblox game. You know who used to do that was uh, Microsoft in the Xbox 360. There were like this many slots for Xbox Live Arcade and like some random publishers who just schmoozed with Microsoft would get them. And then they would like sell them to you for like to, like a million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars or whatever. And so it was this huge tax by some stupid middleman who wasn't even Microsoft that was gating your access to being able to get on Xbox Live Arcade. You know, you weren't even dealing with Microsoft deciding what is the best game submission this year. You know, I have to pay the landlord in order to ship on Xbox Live Arcade. And they fix that and, like, maybe we'll get better games if we just, like, put the best games on and just decide directly. And I, I think it's a very strange model. If you want to encourage people to build mm. for you, 
Um, and so it, it's very strange because it's also going to gate access to all the most valuable resources. We go into huge detail in it in the report. I'm not going to bore you any more than I already have because I, you know, can sense that I'm going on for a while here. But um, most, but the problem is they've started a trend. Everyone's copying this. All the investors are looking for it. And it's really built on an even more fundamentally unsustainable notion than the rest of it. And um, no, no one's going to want to build if they have to pay yeah. a landlord like tons of money in rent or have to pay millions of dollars to be able to buy a virtual piece of land to do for the privilege of creating value for Sky Mavis. Um, and maybe they'll change it. They can. They're centralized. They can change it. I hope they do. So that's my take on land. So to distill that point really quickly, Lars, if you were in Sky Mavis's position and you could, you know, change like one specific thing about their land UGC efforts, what would you prioritize? Yeah, well, the the, the problem is they painted themselves into a corner, right? Because they did this huge pre-sale of land, set all these expectations. So if they just say, we're going to have infinite land, enough land for everybody, people are going to get mad because they put millions of dollars into this stuff, right? So... What I expect them to do, um, like, I mean, if it was me, I would just bite the bullet and just be like, I made a huge mistake. I'm going to do the right thing. There are two things they can do that I think can get them out of this box. The first is a digital land value tax. They haven't said they're not going to charge you a high holding fee to hold that scarce land. So they could do that. That might be unpopular, given that people expected to be able to extract money from other players this way and earn all this profit. But they did not promise they would do that. So they could do that. The other thing is, is sneakier, and it's called land dilution. And this is when it's like, okay, land is still scarce and there's no tax to hold it, but we're going to change how important land is and, not, and just like, you know, not, 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 be, not be too loud about it. So like make it so all the resources that land gatekeeps can also be accessed elsewhere. They have just like a nice catalog for the Lunacy SDK. It's like, yeah, you can deploy it to land, but you can also just launch it in like a browser like Roblox where it's just a catalog of all the best games. You know what I mean? Because that's better for discovery and we really want to encourage that. And so that will reduce the price of land because land will be less necessary for production. Um, and that, that's, that's kind of the, the route I expect them to take. Interesting. Um, by the way, if you're building a blockchain game and you have figured this stuff out, please get in touch with me. Um, I'm interested to learn more um, and perhaps even uh, help you help you build that. Uh, no, that was fascinating. Thanks, Lars. Um, it's, it's something I've been, I've been wrapping my head around. Um, I've, I've been looking at a lot of projects who, uh, who see themselves as the, the landlords of the metaverse and um, plan on, you know, investing a lot of money, buying up all the land and then either renting it out or building stuff on top of it. And uh, it's good to have to have some feedback there. Um, cool. I I mean, yeah, I, we talked a lot about like everything uh, Axie. Um, yeah, it might be time for like a, a quick conclusion. And then um, as we try and do on this podcast, because I like it, um, I expect every three, every one of you three to give me a bold prediction about Axie. Um, Aaron, maybe you want to you wanna tie this up with, with a little conclusion? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so again, I if you find Axie Infinity, blockchain games, any, any of that interesting and you want to learn more, I highly recommend going and checking out our report. Again, you can go to novic.co and you should be able to find it on the, the front page. We worked hard on it. There's a lot of good stuff there. It breaks everything we talked about today in even more more detail and even more structure. So so definitely go check it out. And again, if that interests you, you can also sign up to our to our premium subscription service where we're gonna be keeping up to date with the industry every single month and deconstructing a new game in similar depth every single month too. And so we're very excited to get that off the ground. You know, to kind of summarize Axie Infinity, I mean look, we've said a lot. Obviously we have to give the team props for pioneering this movement. And for, you know, being a leader and, you know, figuring out what blockchain games 
can be. There wasn't like a strategy guide for them, uh, for Sky Mavis coming into this. So they're they're figuring a lot out as they go, and you know we have to be, uh, you know, understanding and appreciative of that. And what they've done is still built something that's attracted millions of players and has, um, you know, collected a lot of value in the process, and that's great. You know, really where we kind of hone in on in terms of like where we are now, where things are going, is just that the game as is, is fundamentally unsustainable. That doesn't doom it, but it puts more importance on these future things to come, especially the land and UGC efforts, which as Lars just talked about, we also have some concerns about that. So the thing that they need to, to solve, we still have some concerns about their ability to do it. Again, as Lars was saying, like, it isn't game over necessarily. They still can make certain changes. Some of them might be unpopular. Uh, maybe they can come up with something we haven't thought about yet. I'll, I'll, I'll throw one idea out in a, the bold prediction and in a bit. That really is just sort of how we're thinking about Axie Infinity right now. You know, we, we, we're probably right about some stuff. We might be wrong about some stuff and we deserve, you know, the right to change our minds as the facts change and, you know, we learn more over time. That's the way it is with everything. But um, again, check out the report. You'll get our, our best insights and take on basically every detail of, of the game and where we think it's going. Awesome. All right. Time for some uh, some bold predictions. Do you want to kick us off? Um, I mean, I think, I mean, because Axie Infinities and therefore Sky Mavis's sustainability is dependent on creating these new ongoing revenue streams that, you know, are dependent on these future UGC and land efforts. I think part of the problem is just going to be throwing a ton of money at it <laughs> to to try to incentivize people to to build new experiences that lead to other sources of revenue, but also lead to those sources of revenue where not everyone is trying to just take, take, take all the time. And I mean, the treasury has a lot of money in it. Sky Mavis has pretty deep pockets after raising their Series B, and they're in partnership with a lot of people, you know, like Andreessen Horowitz, et cetera, that also have very deep pockets. So, you know, the size of this fund, which again, wouldn't even necessarily be just for Axie Infinity, but also like the Ronin ecosystem as a whole, it wouldn't actually surprise me to see like a $100 million like developer fund or, mm -hmm. or something uh, around this. And yeah. That could even happen pretty soon. Who knows? Um, but I think you know, the more that like these issues become pressing to solve, the more they'll really want to to incentivize and pull every lever they can to to solve for that and throwing a lot of money at at the problem as incentives is, you know, that's that's what they've done so far. The Axiom Infinity is a scheme of incentives, kind of masked as like a game. And I think future development, they might, you know, think similarly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think something they also have is a very large community, right? They have, they have 2 million players who who took the time to set up a wallet to, you know, bridge their money through the, the you know, from Ethereum to Ron uh, or Ronin. And then, um, yeah, so I think that's, if, if they come up with solutions, like there, there could be an, a, like an SLP implosion, um, but that doesn't mean that, they, that it's over for them. Um, yeah. And you see, you also see, like, I mean, like, funds like Andreessen Horowitz, I mean, they back so many companies. They have, like, you know, huge funds that are throwing a lot of money in different places. And, like, we saw with maybe another example with, like, Clubhouse or something, which they funded, they, you know, found ways to bring, like, their their ecosystem of, of founders, like, you know, around it and able to, like, support, like, this other new thing. And it wouldn't surprise me, again, like, Andreessen Horowitz, they invest in a lot of games. They have a big crypto fund. Um, like even that in and of itself, not just money, but um, like influence 
and where a lot of these future games that are getting backed could be built could make a bit of a difference here, but we'll see. So the the top MMR charts of Axie Infinity soon will all be A16Z partners. That's what you're saying. It's not out of the possibility. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, Lars, what's yours? Yeah, so, I mean, if you want a bold prediction, I mean, it's like, I mean, I've already said that if nothing changes, they'll hit a brick wall. So I therefore expect them, because they're not fools, they know it's coming, I expect them to change stuff and, and, and do something radical. But that's not really a bold prediction. Um, I, I guess I could also say that I think, you know, they're, they're going to fight to be a platform, right? Like, I guess I could say that I expect someone else to become the platform because they keep comparing themselves to Steam. But the difference is, Steam, like... Everyone else was asleep at the wheel while Steam just took it, right? That was back in the days of PC gaming is dead. And like everyone just gave Steam so much time to just establish a huge, ridiculous lead. And that's not happening here. The water is already purple. You know, the ocean is already starting to turn red. And, it, and their own investors are, are massively diversified. So like if, if Axie's nodes gets bloodied, you know, setting my crypto skepticism aside, if there's a future for this place, you know, someone else could have like a more you know, have learned from all of Axie's, you know, missteps and come up with a more sustainable platform. But that's not even super bold either. Here's my bold prediction. There's a coming crypto games culture war and everyone's underestimating it. Like right now, one of the biggest problems that most of these crypto games have is they have a lack of game development talent, right? You know, they, they, they're mostly from finance or crypto land and much less so from game development. Like Axie's big claim to fame is that it's actually like kind of a game at all, right? You know, and more and more people like I know a lot of friends who are getting like offers, like just big sacks of cash money dollars to make crypto games. And you know what happens when they come out and say they're doing it? All of their friends and colleagues block them and get super mad at them. And I've tried to keep like a very open mind about crypto and like not be super mean. And I've failed at times. And but like I don't like criticizing things I don't understand. Right. I want to make sure I'm coming from a position of good faith and I'm leaving open the ability to, to have my mind change. Right. Um, but just observing what's happening and, and like what I advise my clients is it's like, look, if you make a crypto game right now, first of all, you're cutting off your distribution to Steam and to all of the app stores, probably all the consoles. We know Nintendo's not going to allow it. They, they're super conservative. Who Maybe Microsoft, who knows? Probably not Sony, right? And um, so your distribution's cut off at the knees. And then a good portion of your friends are going to get super mad and disown you. And um, are you ready to pay that price? I'm not saying that's fair or good. I'm just saying it's happening. I'm seeing it happen to people right now. And that is going to affect the cost of acquiring talent is it's not just acquiring talent that like that you're willing to pay what it is, but you're willing to acquire people that are, are, are going to take that personal risk. Maybe it's just in my own tiny personal bubble that, that that's happening to people. Maybe like in other places, it's like not a big deal, but you asked for a bold prediction, which means something that could blow up in my face and be totally wrong. So there's my bold prediction is crypto culture war. It's worse than that. It's worse than that because um, all the people who felt really bad during free to play, like they were much younger then, they didn't really have much power to stop it. And they feel bad that they didn't say as much back then. And they're like, and it's kind of like in these people's minds, it's kind of a bridge too far. And this is the point where they need to hold the line. And I mean, I don't entirely disagree with them. I mean, I am a crypto skeptic, right? You know, and, um, and, and so it's like, so a lot of people when, and the other thing is that the other recipe for a culture war is people are speaking each other's languages. They're coming from completely different worlds. So when crypto people say it's like, well, you're fine with free to play. That's the worst thing you could say to an anti-crypto person because like, I'm not fine with free to play. And I did nothing then and now it's too late and I'm forced to work on these games and you just encouraged me even more to dig in. So 
I mean, I mean that's my bold prediction that that may be wrong and blow up in my face. But I think there's there's a coming crypto culture war, um, especially if it gets right wing coded, then it's all over because then people will just decide to hate it or not just based off of the people who are associated with it. You know, so if Trump starts tweeting about crypto, it's all over. All right, um, I I am planning on organizing a you know crypto culture war debate on the crypto corner for the Metacast. I think it's going to be interesting. I think. We can have you know uh, uh, an adult discussion about this, um, and I think we can we can you know set both the pros and cons of, of uh, the whole space in a row, and then uh, get, have people uh, let people get a like take an educated dis- uh, decision on that. Yeah, because I mean I I really fundamentally I don't want to criticize things because I've decided I don't like them, and then go find reasons to not like them. Like I think, I mean I'm I'm not going to judge other people, but that's not how I do things. And I'm really glad that the people at Novik were willing to take on kind of a rabble rouser like myself to do what I feel is an honest, you know, by the numbers assessment of things. Like I don't like being able to say something without having numbers to back it up. And that, that's where I come mm-hmm. from because I don't, I don't like, and I'm not, not accusing anyone else of arguing in bad faith, but I know when I'm doing it and I don't like it when I do it. All right. Well, awesome. Um, this, this, this was the episode, Jimmy, Lars and Aaron. Um, I found this extremely interesting. Um, I've also had to look at the report. It is, it is awesome. I uh, highly recommend everyone checking it out. Um, yeah. So if you liked what you heard, you know, go to our website, you can find more information there. You can also join the discord. Um, yeah. Uh, with that, we wish you a great weekend because you're listening hopefully to this on a Friday and, uh, yeah, let's speak to you in the next episode. Cheers. (laughs) 